Programming is often described as an exercise in lifelong frustration. It's a series of unknowns followed by an aha moment and that just constantly repeats itself. Because of this, we spend our time dealing with a form of learned helplessness uh, where we accept annoying things. We gloss over them and carry on because it's not the core focus of our jobs. So the last few years I've spent trying to decouple myself from accepting those painful things and actively trying to make things better for other programmers. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss the Jamstack, a new way of building websites and apps that are fast, secure, and simple to work with. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. On the line, we got Peter Pistorius. Peter, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you doing, Dougie? I am doing perfectly fine. <laughs> is it cool that I call you B. Dougie? That's how I know you online? <laughs> That's how most people know me, okay. uh, quite honestly. I was actually having a conversation, uh, <laughs> had my first like in-person DevRel professionals drink up a couple nights ago. And met somebody who knew me only as B Dougie on the internet and called me Dougie in person. Like my GitHub handle is Dougie, B Dougie. So I actually go by that at GitHub as well. So professionally, people only know me as B Dougie. Perfect. <laughs> if we only we could choose our own names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is possible. I mean, it's a what? It's a what? One piece of paper away to to take it to the the courthouse. That's true. I've had the dream to name myself Egon after the after the person from Ghostbusters. <laughs> But uh, I think that might be too nerdy, so I'm going to stick with Peter. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's amazing. Wow, we're, we're winning so much about each other in like the first 30 seconds. But speaking of about each other, I'd love the listeners to know a little bit more about you if they're not familiar. Who, who is Peter? How would you describe yourself? Yeah, so um, a little bit of a confession. I originally wrote down what I am here. Uh, I'm the founder of Snapnet, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that seemed really boring and didn't accurately describe who I am. So I Googled how to introduce yourself and found some solid advice. <laughs> so I, I'm a programmer who loves programming, but programming is often described as an exercise in lifelong frustration. It's a series of unknowns followed by an aha moment, and that just constantly repeats itself. And I think because of this, we spend our time dealing with a form of learned helplessness, uh, where we accept annoying things. Uh, we gloss over them and carry on because it's not the core focus of our jobs which is to write features and fix bugs. So the last few years I've spent uh, trying to decouple myself from accepting those painful things and actively trying to make things better for other programmers. So how I got here? I was born in South Africa. I spent a ton of time on IRC as a teenager where I got into FreeBSD and I wanted to become a Berkeley computer wizard. I was not cool in school, <laughs> as you <laughs> might be able to tell. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I definitely didn't even know what Berkeley computer. I didn't know anything about California <laughs> growing up. So <laughs> that is a uh, that's amazing. Like, wh why why Berkeley? Like, do you read books or something like that uh, on Silicon Valley and stuff like that? So FreeBSD came from Berkeley, and there was at the time there was like a whole bunch of lore about like these wizards of Berkeley and all the amazing things that they were doing with computers. And for me, it was just a an interesting culture, and I wanted to be a part of that. But I was super far away. And I just gobbled up as much of Silicon Valley culture as I could through the internet. I never ended up in California. Uh, I ended up in Berlin, uh, where the co-founders of GitHub started a company called Chatterbug. And I figured that joining them would be the second best thing. 
And it was. <laughs> I, I really loved working with Tom and Scott. Nice. And that's a that's a little bit of my personal journey. Cool. How'd you uh, how'd you run into them? Uh, well, I guess you were living in Berlin, but like, well, what's the sort of origin story of that? So I found a job posting and I applied, <laughs> but I applied like really, really aggressively. I created a demo and I sent it to them and I eventually got a, an interview with Scott and I met him and we spoke and I went through like three or four series of interviews and I, I, I just got the job. I was a React, React Native developer and I, I think they were looking for someone like that. I suppose it was just luck. And I think a lot of my career has actually been luck. I've just kind of fallen into programming. I've fallen into interesting roles and interesting projects. And I fell into my job at, at, at Chatterbug. And it was really, I mean, I wanted it. Um, and I worked to try and get make that happen. But it was the right time at the right place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you say luck, but like you obviously were already ingrained into community and even like in IRC and stuff like that. So like you at least knew who I don't know. Did you know who Scott and, and Tom were when you applied for the job? Yeah, I think they actually advertised it as work with the co-founders of GitHub. So I was like, damn, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a good selling point. Yeah. I definitely want to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you ended up working at Chatterbug, which Chatterbug's still around, uh, still going strong. It's funny because I was off off air. I was saying I've never met Scott before, but I know more a lot about him because I work at <laughs> GitHub and I, I work with people who who knew him personally, worked with him. But yeah, he he's uh, likes learning languages, so they have a product to help people learn languages. And uh, not I'm not going to sell Chatterbug very well <laughs> on this podcast. But basically, you started working there, but you also started working on um, this little side project called Redwood JS too as well. Do you want to share about what that is and how you got involved there? Yeah, so whilst I was working at Chatterbug, uh, I worked with Tom on the React Native app and the front end. And we started discovering patterns that made building a React project feel good. But back then, the amount of integration work that you had to code was insane. Uh, if you wanted to use like React, you had to use Webpack. And if you wanted to use Storypack, Storybook, there was integrations there. There was Jest, there was integrations there. You just needed to join all these tools together, and it was insane. So... We thought we could help by giving those tools as standards out of the box. And really how it happened was one night I was lying in bed and Tom sent me a message on Slack and he said, hey, I'm thinking about building the things that we're, we've been doing into a framework. Would you be interested? And I, I think I like literally jumped out of bed and I was like fist bumping in the air. And my partner was like, what, are, what is going on? What's happening here? But to me, it, it kind of like felt like, like validation, you know, like this, yeah. this person, Tom, who has such a good reputation. He asked me to build something with him. And I poured a ton of myself into Redwood. But it's always been a collaborative effort, I think. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah. And um, what I wanted to talk about today is, is Snaplet. So like you're now working on this new problem, uh, which I guess, what is Snaplet? And like what problem is it solving? Yeah, so Snaplet is a tool that gives developers access to accurate data during development. So what does that mean? You're a developer and you code against a development database. That's to say the code for the feature that you're currently writing or the bug that you're currently fixing communicates with your development database. The data inside of that database is often not great because it's an inaccurate representation of production. And it probably has a bunch of weird rows and modifications compared to everyone else on your team. So the state, your database, is just inaccurate. This is bad because you code, your code will be shipped to production and run against the production database. But a bunch of your own assumptions whilst you are writing the feature or fixing the bug 
are just inaccurate. So Snaplet aims to solve that by giving you tools to code against the database that looks like your actual production database, but without the private information. If you think about it, you want to build features or fix bugs and write tests that reflect reality. And creating a seed script isn't part of any of that work. It's just adjacent to the goals that you're trying to achieve as a developer. Uh, so I want to take that away and just give you really accurate data that you can code against and just focus on your job. Okay, cool. So like being able to, to see data uh, and also you mentioned like the representation of like being able to not have private information. Are you all, is this like um, seeding data, but also like a faker type tool built in together? Yeah, yeah. So how it works is we connect to your database and we copy the rows out of your database and transform them uh, based on a configuration that you give us. So you'll tell us, as an example, you'll say, we have a users table and there's an email column in the users table. So replace those with fake emails. Yeah. Um, and you can do that for anything. You can do it for like names, first names. Um, and right now we have a DSL. So you use these strings in order to represent how you want us to manipulate your data. But we're going to give you a JavaScript callback so you can actually write functions and have more control of how the data is represented. Yeah. We then copy that data to disk where you can then restore it uh, using our CLI onto your local machine onto a staging database or a, de a development database in the cloud, or even a container. Okay, cool. And then, I guess my question is like, why has no one else thought of this? <laughs> like, I've actually not, I can't think of any other tool that's like very similar to being able to sort of like take a snapshot of production stuff, update records so that way folks can have access to like real looking data. Other than like Faker, like the Faker libraries, the, the, um, the sweet tools, like that's the closest I've seen, but that's also open source libraries and not quite the same. So like I assume you were doing this at Chatterbug first before you jumped over to do this full time? Uh, actually at Chatterbug, we had for the longest time, we actually had just a direct dump of production. Yeah. And that's what happens in a lot of companies is you just get this like they're like, here you go. Here you can copy down the production dump and don't lose your laptop. Or if you do, make sure your drive is encrypted so that we don't lose this data. Yeah. But I think intuitively, uh, as developers, like we really care about privacy. And then you're carrying around people's private data. You can't show demos of the product or features uh, that might leak that information. And you just don't want that. So eventually we had a script that did transform some of the data, but it did it poorly. And it was a lot of work. Yeah, so that was like really part of the origin of this is like, I want to self-serve my needs as a developer. I want to be able to get access to data when I need it and reset the snapshot or get like a new one every day. Because often what happens is someone else in your organization is taking care of the snapshots of your database. And when they break, no one else has visibility into whether they broke or when they broke or how to fix them. And that person could be on holiday and you need a production dump now and you just can't get it. You have to like nag some person who's in a different time zone and wait for them to come back and be like, hey, can I actually get access to the data? I need it now. So I wanted to serve every individual's needs on the team or every programmer's needs on the team so that they can just do it for themselves. Okay, that's uh, <laughs> amazing too as well. So you're now working at Snaplet. How is it going? Like, Is this something that, like, at what point is is it the stage of this project right now? So like, you're you're working on this on your own or do you have a team that you're working with? Yeah, we're a team. So right now we're in open beta. We're a team of eight people, two amazing designers and a couple of developers. And um, 
right now we have the ability to create snapshots um, of your database that is hosted in our own infrastructure, but we want to give people the ability to do this on their own machines, so not have to give us access to their production database. I'm very aware that I actually don't want to connect to other, uh, other people's databases and ha- even see their data in a, in a transformed fashion. Yeah. So we want to make that open to the public. We want to make a lot of it open source. We want to add new, new methods of transforming your data, uh, the ability to, gen- to generate data, the ability to subset data, and um, introduce new ways of handling transformations. So we really want to make this a tool for the community so that they can, so that developers can manage their own uh, data requirements on their own terms. Okay, cool. So I'm ready to, to use it today because uh, I had mentioned offline that I was working on a project and actually, so I'm working on the project open source and like we have a snapshot of data we've sort of like essentially scraped from, from GitHub uh, we also get some real-time data as well. So things like uh, it's open source as a project to find your next open source contribution. Uh, sorry, I'm going into pitch mode. And then so we have a like list of usernames and like stars for repos and issues and forks and stuff like that. So like that data exists, and we don't store things like emails. So like that's not an issue for us. But the problem is like we have so much data, and some data actually hits like GitHub's API publicly sometimes. Like things like images. Uh, we haven't really started caching those yet, so that's something that we kind of need to like fake when we're testing. Because like if we're seeing how many stuff we can render on the page, and like we end up like refreshing like ten times in the in an hour, that's a, a definitely a way to get rate limited. So uh, I'm curious, can I provide like some sort of random seed of of images to be able to like do that locally and not have to get rate limited every time I try to make a new feature? Totally, yeah. You could replace those columns. Uh, is it a, like stored in a JSON object, or is it is it a column? So right now, it's a, it's just a Postgres database. Like we're not storing it any anyway locally, um, but we're fetching like the username, and then we hit the API that GitHub.com slash profile image, whatever the URL is, uh, and then it fetches it live. So we we need to cache it eventually. But my thought is that if I start storing those in the database. I probably want to be able to fake that because I don't want to. Yeah. I, I don't want to just have a bunch of real images that are just bogging down the experience uh, for anybody developing. Yeah, so you could create a transformation uh, that replaces that that column with some values that you define, either just a static one or a random set of them, and then we'll insert those into the table whilst we're creating the snapshot, and you'll have that fake data to work against. Um, you could even kick out those usernames if you didn't want them, if there were any sensitive issues around that. Yeah, no, no issues, but I could see how there would be issues if we start getting more intensive data or like actually doing more. We'll eventually get to this point where we'll have way more research and way more logic on how projects work. So I'm curious if I, as I mentioned, I'm using Superbase. I didn't mention that on air, but I mentioned that before we hit live. So I'm using Superbase. It's a Postgres database. Uh, I'm leveraging the Superbase SDK, and I have like Superbase Studio for local instances. But it's still looking at production type data. So today with Snaplet, like how do I start getting snapshots of uh, of my current situation today? So your Superbase database is this hosted locally or is it hosted in Superbase's cloud? So technically, it's hosted in Superbase's cloud for production. We do have a version that if someone wanted to get local versions, that they can run a, a script and then Superbase will work locally. We've had some issues development wise, so like technically today it doesn't work, but in the future. Someone should be able to clone the repo or fork the repo. Hopefully, if they're going to contribute, 
and then run a script to get a snapshot of production data locally with Superbase. So this is how I would approach it. I would sign up to Snaplet. I'd connect my production database to Snaplet. Uh, I'd create some transformation so that that data that you didn't want hitting the APIs is transformed. And then I'd create a schedule so that I get a snapshot every day or every week or something like that so that it stays up to date without you having to click a button or something like that. Yeah. So we contribute the Snaplet config to your code base. That means that anyone who forks that also has access to your project, which means that if they had a token or they invited to your team, they could restore that snapshot either to their local computer or if they had a Superbase instance in, in the cloud, like a development instance, they could restore it to there. So you have two options, like use that Docker image that Superbase provides for you and restore to that, or use an instance in the cloud and restore to that. But then you've got something you can code against that has accurate data. And like, actually, this is part of my dream, is that open source projects adopt Snaplet and it becomes sort of the de facto way to share data with those people. And when people move from team to team, they are just accepting that Snaplet's going to be part of the part of their stack and part of the way that they think about coding against accurate data. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the. I don't know if you're connected with the Prisma folks, but it's very similar. Where it's like almost a given if I want to do some like ORM type uh, lookups and stuff like that, or even like update my my schema. Well, I guess Redwood uses Prisma, so yeah, you're very familiar with Prisma. But I guess what I'm getting at is like, yeah, I totally, I totally get this. This is a great addition to a developer workflow. Uh, and then I also I totally understand too as well. So if I have a Postgres URL, I can point that directly to Snaplet. Snaplet's now, is it giving me back a Postgres URL back so that I can just, if it's local, I can switch to Snaplet and when it's production, it can just use the production one? So what, what it's doing, it, your, your development credentials don't change. Your production credentials already point to your production super-based database. So what Snaplet is doing is taking that copy of the production database and you're also giving it credentials of where it should restore to. So you're coding against this local database, and Snaplet will put the data into there. So then when you're coding, it has that new refreshed data in it. Just to roll back a little bit, like with Prisma, Prisma, we actually have a, a decent integration to Prisma itself, where they bring the structure. You like run Prisma migrate dev, and it creates this, this table structure. And then there is this opportunity to seed data, but Snaplet has a data-only mode, so you can type Snaplet restore dash dash data only, and it won't bring any structure to your local database. It will only insert the data that you've snapshotted. So you can use Prisma and Snaplet together quite well. Okay, excellent. Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense too as well. And like, I could see Snaplet being like a plugin or an add-on for Superbase or PlanetScale or, or another like hosting platform. I, I guess there's a lot of a lot of tools out there. So is this uh, my question to you now is this like Postgres specific? Is this like no SQL? Like we'd actually get that in like those types of details. So so right now we're Postgres only. Okay. Uh, we're trying to focus on satisfying the needs of Postgres users to begin with. But architecturally speaking, we could support any database. We just don't want to go too wide first. Yep. Um, turns out t- databases are complicated <laughs> internally. <laughs> There's a lot of weird stuff going on in there that uh, isn't it very intuitive when you're starting out fresh. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually I'm excited about the I made a prediction last year about the evolution of developer databases and how to approach it. Because it was a trend that I was seeing of these so obviously you have like Cockroach, who's like huge, and then you've got Hersura, who's also at this point huge. Uh, and then the tools like Prisma. I see tooling and databases the same way we saw the front end tooling 
uh, just completely changed where you're no longer just uploading HTML files to S3. Now we have like Netlify and Vercel and we have render.com. And we have all these tools that basically get our sites up and running. I think we're, we're seeing the same thing in databases. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, and I think we as developers, we kind of ignore the fact that a database is more than just reading and writing and structure. Yeah. And a lot of companies are starting to expose that to us. Like Superbase has this amazing product on top of Postgres, which is amazing. Like access, row level access and real time and all kinds of great stuff. And it's just built on top of the database. So I 100% agree with you. It's super exciting. And that's where I want to be. I want to be adjacent to all those really great database services. And I want to provide data to developers wherever they're working, uh, whether you're working locally or in the cloud. Um, I want to give you the ability to manipulate data in bulk for your own needs. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. Uh, what's also exciting is I signed up while we were talking. So um, awesome. <laughs> uh, hopefully hopefully other people have also signed up at this point because I'm like, I need to see how this thing is going to improve my developer workflow. Not just for me, because like I also have, I mentioned I have an open source project. The open source is open source. So uh, I have this weird balance of like, I, I want to solve problems in the open and in public. But then I also have the challenge of like I've got to make sure it's a reproducible experience for anybody who's just driving by and wants to like manipulate a weird thing in like the the dashboard. Um, so like they can see everything I can see, but also what every other user can see. And that that reproducibility is a thing that it's it can be challenging, especially if you're storing sensitive stuff, which is why I don't store any sensitive things because I haven't quite figured out that part yet. But yeah, you were you were saying? I was saying like I, I totally get that, and I think from. One of the things that I really appreciate about Snaplet is we, we're dogfooding it. And any new developer that joins our team, they literally type one command, Snaplet restore, and then they have a really accurate version of a production database. So whenever we see a bug in production or uh, when we have to code a feature that uses, like has to code against a lot of rows or things like that, we don't have this uh, disconnect between what the reality and what you're coding against. And it's a much nicer experience than having to like, find some AWS keys, run some random seed script that then inserts it into your database. Like The experience is, is really polished, I think. And it would be similar for your users of uh, open sourced. They just need to type Snaplet restore in the CLI and they'll get a production-like database. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love this because uh, all these uh, Postgres adjacent tools, which I, I highly agree with like the choice of making sure it works with Postgres because you like get a large swath of engineers to to sort of work with and, and, and entice them to leverage your product. But yeah, the Postgres tooling is like in the back of my head now because I've done so much work <laughs> uh, with my, my current database. A command like Snaplet Restore makes sense to me. Uh, so that way I can just have a really quick, quick script of folks, hey, make sure you npm install, make sure you hit Snaplet Restore, and then now you're off to the races. Like, go change whatever you need to do, or pick up a feature, or whatnot. And then, like, I live and die based on how easy it is for people to contribute to my project. Because again, working in the open, it's not a a very hands-on sort of like a developer tool as a sense of like a, a CLI tool or even like a Snaplet, but it's got a UI in front of it. So like, I get a lot of folks who are approaching contributing mm. because I just do a bunch of React stuff, a lot of UI stuff, but then trying to educate folks who want to make UI changes on how to like run scripts and like PSQL stuff to, to make it work for for their situation. Yeah. Like that's where most people just drop off. So like I'm trying to make sure no matter who walks into my project. And I think Snaplet is a, a really good choice for for just getting getting things started. 
And actually, I think one of the things that we really brought to the table when we were starting Redwood JS was that we wanted to build with the community. In the beginning, it was just Tom, Rob, and myself, and then later on, David. But uh, we really wanted other people to contribute. And I think well, that's one of the big strengths of Redwood JS is that it is we have we have spent a lot of time building contributor tools, uh, and they work really well. And we do see a lot of contributions from varying degrees of people in the community. So um, I 100% appreciate that, and I will I will personally contribute some Snaplet love to to open source to see if if that uh, if that works for you. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm, I'm literally at the page where I, I drop in my connection string, so uh, I will definitely kick the tires on this later this afternoon. We, we've been talking about Snaplet up before this interview, um, so <laughs> some of my top contributors are already like prepared because we we tried to solve this problem already. And um, had the back out of it because it was just too convoluted for new contributors. So, yeah, if y- y'all can keep up with that promise, where you definitely got a definitely a user uh, and potentially a, a customer. And I don't know if when, when y'all have pricing or I guess there's no pricing today, right? No, no, it's completely free. What we're trying to do is build the best product for individuals. And once we get to teams or bigger companies, then we'll start thinking about pricing. But right now, we're really trying to service the market and make sure that developers are happy with the product that we're building. You said that you're going to enter your connection string in there, but we have a demo one that you can try out, which is actually a super-based database. You can just copy that and paste it and play around. You don't have to give us your production credentials. And nice. we're very near to the point where you don't have to give that to us at all. You can just run this yourself in your own infrastructure, create a snapshot on the file system, and restore from that same one on the file system. Oh, that's even better. Yeah, because... Um... Because yeah, basically I, now I'm I'm even getting this even more now because uh, I can just tell you what the rows and the records look like, and which is exactly what we just said earlier, which is why you give us a, a test one. Absolutely amazing and amazing onboarding flow. Just to, <laughs> the fact that I can sort of fumble around and, and click through this uh, and get to this revelation. Forget webinars; like y'all can just literally have people just like click log in, and then uh, you got something you can copy and paste. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I, I actually had a, a person in mind when I was building this, and it's a junior developer that I that I mentored at Chatterbug, and I built this for her in particular. You know, she wanted to learn how to code, and she didn't want to learn about all this other stuff. Yeah. She had real goals, which was writing features and fixing bugs, and these other things just distracted her and made her feel anxious. So I want to give people that ability just to like focus on what it is you're here to do. The other stuff can come later over time, you know? Yeah, so I, I want people to self-service their needs. That's the goal here. Yeah, that's <laughs> that makes so much sense. That's an awesome story too as well, because I think a lot of folks, sometimes we can approach tooling, especially developer tooling, in the sense of like, I, I need senior engineers to opt in because I need to sell to enterprises or whatever the, the goal is. But to be able to approach it in a way that it could actually bring in junior developers and they can connect this thing without needing to know like what PSQL is, that's genius because you're going to get way more of a, uh, adoption uh, of folks who can sort of prove this working, and it's something actually inside baseball. But we discovered at Netlify is that like most people, the rebuttal for not using Netlify was like, "Oh, I already use S3 and I already managed my own CDN out of my kitchen. Like, why would I use Netlify?" It's like, well, maybe you're not the right person for this then. Uh, so, like, I, I ended up doing DevRel uh, as an engineer while at Netlify, and the thing I did was actually every time I went to a conference, I spoke at a boot camp. For that same reason, because I could actually get a bunch of bootcamp students who are like, oh, I can get a blog up like without knowing AWS and 
had to do all this stuff. Like, yeah. And at the time, the industry was like, we were very much knees deep in, no, you need to know DevOps and AWS and be able to manage CSS and React components and stuff like that. And I was like, ah, I don't know if that's the way we're heading towards. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that you also feel that tension in, in like larger organizations. If, if you join a company and there's like these clear distinctions between DevOps and developers, you kind of have to sit and wait for things that is infrastructure. And you're like, hey, I need somewhere to upload some files to, or I need, I need that database dump, or I need to see what's going on in production. And you have to wait. And it's like, really what we want to do is give people the tools to make sure that they're successful without having to go through go through other people. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, yeah, appreciate you, you chatting with us uh, about Snaplet. Uh, again, I'm sold, even though it's a it's a free product today, and uh, definitely going to be kicking around with this uh, this little uh, connection string. Again, check out Snaplet. And uh, for now, we're going to roll over in the picks. So these are jam picks. Anything you're jamming on uh, could be music, food, honestly, just about anything. But today, I only have technology picks. Which is not like myself, but I'm I'm writing tons of code right now, so it's currently what I'm jamming on right now. So, if you don't mind, I'll go first, Peter. Go for it. My first pick is Radix. Maybe it's Radix, but um, R A D I X. It's a um, UI library for a lot of these like small components within the web. So like uh, menus and dialog boxes and like really like this. I guess I don't know like the tool chest of things you have to build all the time, uh, but can also be super tedious. So like things like radio buttons. Like how do you do that in React? There's so many different ways to do it. And what I like about Radix is that it solves a problem and it solves it really, really elegantly and really fast. So like no longer are you like trying to figure out oh, if I click this button, what happens and that button, what happens are tabbed uh, list and stuff like that. Um, so we're, we're doing an overhaul on the open source design system uh, we've got like disjointed parts. We've got a design system I built six years ago when I was at Netlify. Open source actually looks just like Netlify six years ago, and it's never been updated. So because Netlify's been updated multiple times since then. So basically what I'm getting at is we need to be a little more nimble and being able to update the design system. So making that decision was actually really good uh, to sort of get that out of the way. And then now we're just polishing and trying to get a um, consistent UI look. So there's a lot of like plugins like Tailwind Redix or other types of Radix com- combinations for styling. And what I found with like picking a design system, having the styling separate helps me have flexibility. Because like the things that I don't want to build is the radio buttons, but I do want to have control on the, the actual design itself. Um, so that's a decision we've made so far. And uh, looking forward to sort of plugging along. I, got, I feel like I got to take like a, a Saturday or something like that to finish all these components or go pair program with somebody who's interested in, in doing some UI stuff with me. But hopefully we'll be working on that soon. But we didn't even address the, the great design of Snaplet. Um, you mentioned you have two designers. Uh, I just wanted to shout out how, how nice the design looks. Thanks. Two of the designers are my partner. And her twin sister. I like I mentioned luck earlier. I'm one of the luckiest people I think on the planet because they push and stretch me every day with the things that they bring out. Uh, I don't know if you saw. We actually created a cereal box that shares our company values, and it was one of the most creative things I've I've ever seen. Uh, and they're not developers; they're just creative people. But the language that they used was just so amazing. That is, that is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm very lucky. <laughs> And I, I came about it by, we were sitting uh, 
we were sitting eating breakfast and I bought some cereal whilst I was in South Africa and I was reading the box and the copy was terrible, but I couldn't stop reading the box. And then I thought it would actually be a really good idea to share our company values on something that you can't stop reading. You're just sitting there and you're like, all right, I'm going to entertain myself with this stuff. <laughs> and you read it like six or seven times and then the box is done and you throw it away. So Yeah, can you, uh, can you send that link? I'd love to take a look at that. Sure. Uh, and then while you're grabbing that link, I want to mention my other pick real quick. So I've been actually using Netlify branch deploys for my beta. So all the, all the UI changes that we're making, we're sort of testing them in production. But the way Netlify works, because uh, we're using Netlify for the hosting, is that you can actually deploy directly to a branch. So we, our branch is called beta. And the site itself is called hot.opensauce.pizza. So with branch deploys, you can deploy the branch, but you can also set it to a custom domain. So we now have beta.hot.opensauce.pizza. And it just works really elegantly. So instead of shipping stuff live and breaking stuff, uh, well, shipping fast and, and breaking things, uh, we can now do that on an entire custom domain. And then it's a lot easier to entice people to test things when you have it live in production as opposed to like, hey, here's the PR. Click on the deploy preview link uh, and then we'll keep you updated there. Now it's just, URL's been updated. Go test it. Let me know if it works for you. And uh, we just, our, our first in- integration with Radix is actually now live on, well, by the time you get to this uh, this podcast, you're, it'll be a completely different beta version. But what I'm getting at is like, we're now testing out some cool things and UI stuff and basically production because uh, it, it mirrors production today. So I, I could see <laughs> if we wanted to do some like weird, interesting things with Snaplet on the beta flag, instead of using production database, I think we can actually do something pretty clever there as well. So totally. We'll chat. <laughs> yes, I was. I was. I was going to jump in there and be like, "Snaplet can help you here. Let's do this." <laughs> awesome. Yeah, for things like testing pagination or infinite scrolling, I want to test that before going live in production. So, like, I would totally just like generate a ton of Snaplet data and then test that without needing to like hit the production stuff. Awesome. Cool. Uh, do you have some picks that you wanted to share as well? Yeah, I am lately very interested in databases and. One of the ones that I am a fan of is one called HDB, which is kind of like this proxy in front of Postgres, but it abstracts away SQL, um, the schema, data fetching, and things like that. You communicate through this proxy, and it's just really incredibly elegant, I think. So like with Prisma, where you define the schema model, you can do the same thing in HDB, but it like it creates a graph of relations, and the schema language is really awesome compared to SQL. Let me put it that way. Like this, <laughs> it, it feels incredibly powerful. And it, it's like the database reimagined for today. And I can imagine if I were starting a new project that I would want to try this out. Like as an open source developer, I, I would try this as something that's interesting and see how it works in, in production. Cool, yeah, I'm checking it out right now. You know, I, I want to say I've heard of this, but I don't think I actually took a look into it. I think it, it would, they reached 1.0 a couple of weeks ago and it was in Hacker News and Hacker News was resoundingly positive about their SQL alternative or their query language, which I think is rare. <laughs> yeah, I think the Hacker News is actually where I actually saw this come through, yeah. But yeah, very cool. I mean, I, I tried a ton of stuff. I, I'm a big fan of uh, just jumping on stream, trying a thing in front of people. And uh, so, like in this weird mob programming experience where we can unblock each other, trying to do some tutorial or whatnot. You don't get the you don't get uh, 
uh, mob fingers where you literally can't type anymore. <laughs> that happens to me all the time when I'm demoing or trying to code in front of people. Um, no, I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if that actually happened to me, but um, I totally get the. Uh, I do get like brain farts, like lots of brain farts. But that's why what I like about having the mob programming experience is being able to have people unblock me and be like, oh yeah, you were actually, you were going to type this. And they're like, oh yeah, you're right. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> yeah, it's like collaborative debugging. Everyone needs that sometimes. For sure. Unless it's not helpful. So my, my second pick is an app called Centered, uh, centered.app. And I think one of the things that I really appreciate about being a programmer is that you spend a lot of your time uh, in flow. If you can get there, and Centered is an app that helps you get to flow using kind of like three mechanisms. The one is a Pomodoro timer, which is like a 25-minute timer and a five-minute break. The other is it plays music in your ear. And the third part is that it, well, I guess it's four parts. The third, the third part is that it puts you into a collaborative experience with other people who are trying to get into flow. And you can kind of see them doing their work. Like you can show your camera and show your face. You don't have to do that. I think that's a little weird. But uh, other people do. And you're like, okay, there are other people working in the world. I'm joining them. And the fourth part is you create a, a list of things that you should do. And every task is 25 minutes. So you can like break up your work into steps. And it's sort of like a formulaic way of getting into flow. Now that I'm a founder, I don't think I ever get into flow because I'm pulled into a million directions. But when I want to think for uh, an extended period of time, I use Centered and I really like it. Yeah, nice for sure. I've actually seen Center around the Twitterverse. I haven't actually checked it out, but I know the the creator founder Eric uh, from Twitter as well. He has a very <laughs> fun Twitter account to follow to as well. Yeah, uh, and the last one that I I really have fallen in love with is an app called Warp.dev. It's a terminal that's written in Rust, and it sort of supercharges your development abilities. So your terminal is like usually there's this long stream of output and input, but it isn't really structured. So it's difficult to figure out what you were trying to do or when there's so much text on your screen. And Warp kind of segments your commands into these blocks and it gives you a neat like way to input things. And it just feels like the terminal reimagined for today. And it's fast. <laughs> yeah, I, I did actually <laughs> use this very recently as well. They're they're actually hiring right now, so folks definitely reach out to Warp if you want to want a job. Um, but yeah, I, I really enjoyed the experience. I actually have it on my my sort of focus development machine. So like, <laughs> I'm talking to you on my work machine, but then I have a development machine, uh, and uh, I've actually used it a couple times. It's pretty nice. I saw you unbox the M1 the other day. Yeah, is that your dev machine? <laughs> no, that's my work machine. Uh, I still use a, a 2017 MacBook Pro. Okay, it's like the like six months before the Touch Bar, so it's like the last one they put out. Does it have the Does it have the good keyboard or the bad keyboard? Uh, it's the good keyboard. Okay. Yeah, so it's the last model with the good keyboard. Actually, the, I actually owe Apple for helping me come up with Snaplet because what happened was I gave my my really powerful laptop back to Chatterbug when I when I stopped working there, and I went back to my like 2015 MacBook Pro the one that had the good keyboard. And I didn't want to buy a new one because the keyboards were so terrible. But that computer was super slow. So I was kind of like, uh, I was coding locally and I was like, nah, I need to code in the cloud because this thing's too slow. And then I would boot up a new VM every time I wanted to create a new PR, but I didn't have a database, but I had this production database. So I was like, how am I going to get this data 
onto this local dev machine. And then I started tinkering with that, like you, you were doing for open source. And I was like, if this is a problem for me, and it's a lot of work, I can just imagine how I can make this good for other people too. So thank you, Apple, for those terrible keyboards. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I, um, I have a slew of, of content about setting up a new dev machine because it's been four years since I had to do that. Wow. And there's all these like new things that are out there like Warp and, and Fig. And so I've been trying to try a bunch of stuff as I'm like building the best dev environment. So um, it's been a while since I've had, because I'm like, I'm a Vim user and like I've never got out of Bash. So like I've been just out of inertia, never tried anything new. And now I'm like trying everything. Yeah. Are you using VS Code? Uh, I am using VS Code because, like, now I'm at the point where I all the sort of TypeScript type ahead stuff and everything else. I'm, I'm just I'm stuck. So, and there are a couple of Vim Vim based IDEs that are built on top of like VS Code stuff. I've tried those, and those are pretty good, like OmniVim. But I still go back to VS Code because I just need all the latest and greatest. Now I'm just sort of stuck there. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, I, I always think that. Text editors are one of those things that people stick with for a long time, but in my career, I've seen like three or four industry shifts to like different ones. Yeah, and VS Code is the latest one, and um, I'm wondering if there will be another one. Who knows? I mean, if things like Warp Dev are like changing the way we look at the terminal, I, I think there's opportunity for for new stuff. But yeah, I think it's just how willing are you able to shift? And that's my problem is like I shift development changes very rarely. Mm. Like if I know something's working, or like if I have a setup or a dot file that works, yeah, I'm not changing it because I need inertia. Like I just need to jump in, make a change, which is why I go through so much design system work because I want to be able to have stuff I can pull off the shelf and just throw on the page. Totally. All right, yeah, Peter. Thanks so much for the conversation. I, I think we should definitely keep in touch. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. And uh, listeners, keep spreading the jam. That's all the time we have for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 